We are continuing in John, finishing up John chapter 3 this morning. If you have a Bible, there are printed notes at both exits, full manuscript of the sermon, and you can grab those and follow along now if you'd like, or uh, grab one on your way out and read it later, and it's got the... um, got a lot of verses and things I just don't have time to include in the message, but um, I think you will benefit by them. And those are all online as well as the audio messages um, online. So this morning, John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36, I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible. He who comes from above is above all. And he who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. I uh, have been grieved lately to hear of several young adults here in town who formerly attended this church. Some of them made professions of faith in this church and uh, in some cases served in this church. But now they do not go to any church and in some cases I've heard have basically renounced their faith in Christ. I had lunch several weeks ago with one of these young people who now professes to be an atheist. And you you see cases like that and think, what a tragedy. And of course you wonder, well, why does this happen? Um, Probably the reasons are as varied as the individuals that uh, fall away. But behind it all, of course, is the enemy of our souls who the Bible says prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he can devour. Sometimes the person believed in Jesus for superficial reasons like the uh, seed that was on the the rocky soil and sprouted up quickly with joy, Uh, but Jesus said it had no roots. And so when the hot sun came out and bore down on it, it withered and died. Or some are like the thorny ground seed that Jesus said uh, it sprouts up, seems to grow for a while, But uh, then Jesus said the thorns of worries and riches and the pleasures of this life choke out the seed and it never goes on to bear fruit for eternity. I think that there are also two common problems behind those who make professions of faith and then fall away from the Lord. I think one problem is that they have a shallow understanding of their true moral guilt before the Lord. In other words, they do not see that they are sinners, that they are condemned by their sin, 
They are under God's wrath and that all of the good deeds in the world will not erase it. I uh, know of someone who uh, fits the bill of falling away and basically when you talk to this person says, well, I'm a good person and it'll go okay with me. He doesn't understand that he is guilty before a holy God and it will not go okay with him. Um, So they don't see their desperate need for salvation. And then secondly, they don't understand who Jesus is and what Jesus did when he died on the cross for their sins. And uh, I've often said to you, I think the whole Christian faith comes down to uh, the the correct answer to what Jesus asked his disciples there in Matthew 16, 15, when he said, Who do you say that I am? That is the crucial question. Who do you say that I am? Because if Jesus is who He claimed to be, if Jesus is who the Scriptures proclaim Him to be, the Messiah, the promised Savior and Deliverer, and uh, the One who came to die on the cross for our sins, then everything else follows. I mean, if, if Christ died for your sins and is risen from the dead, then... I don't care what your problem is, that's who he is, and you've got to follow him. Even if, like John the Baptist, you get your head lopped off, uh, because he is the truth. And either he is the truth or he's not. Either he did die for our sins and is raised, or he did not. And if he did not, then the Apostle Paul says, don't waste your time being a Christian. There are better ways to spend your life if Jesus is not raised from the dead. Now, John is clear, as we've seen, on why he wrote his gospel, chapter 20, verse 31. He wrote, so that you, make that very personal, not you generic, you and you and you and you and you, every you in here, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in his name. You see how he is founding the faith on who Jesus is. He wants you to know who He is. He's the Christ. He is the Son of God. And uh, having that knowledge that you then would believe and have new life. Now, I titled an earlier message from John back in chapter 1, verses 15 to 18, Why You Should Believe in Jesus. I could probably title every message in the book of John, Why You Should Believe in Jesus. But here we have it once more, Why You Should Believe in Jesus. And John is saying, because Jesus is God's Son from heaven, who testifies to God's truth, your eternal destiny then hinges on believing in Him. Now, as I said last time, verses 31 to 36 kind of expound on the first part of John's life motto there in verse 30, He must increase but I must decrease. Last week we looked at humility, how I must decrease. This time, he must increase. John is exalting the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, which John? We don't know whether this is John the Baptist speaking in verses 31 to 36, or John the Apostle. There are a few, not many, but a few, who uh, argue that it's John the Baptist, but I need to go here with Uh, the majority of uh, commentators who say that verses 31 to 36 
are probably the comment of John the Apostle on what has just transpired in John chapter 3. Um, we saw the same thing in John chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Did Jesus continue talking in verse 16? I think probably John commented starting at verse 16 to 21 there. And I think a similar thing here. A couple of things point in that direction. For one thing, uh, the Christology, and that's just a fancy name for the view of Christ, the theology of Christ that is presented in these verses, would seem to be more advanced than John the Baptist would have known at this stage of uh, Revelation. And then coupled with that, these verses are clearly Trinitarian. You'll notice that we, we see God the Father in these verses, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And again, God progressively revealed these truths. And at this stage, for John the Baptist, who was steeped in Judaism, uh, to have that well-defined a view of, of the Trinity is probably unlikely. So I think these are the views of John the Apostle as... Um, he reflected back on it after some years of revelation that he had received. But either way, whichever way you take it, is not that consequential in that they are inspired by God and are profitable for our growth and godliness. And so uh, there are four points here that whichever John makes um, show us why we should believe in Jesus. First of all, in verse 31, John says that Jesus has a heavenly origin, and that he is above all. Uh, verse 31 again. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is ab above all. And I think John is commenting here on Jesus' earlier words to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verses 11 to 13, where Jesus told Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so John is repeating the point that Jesus did not come into being when he was conceived uh, by the Virgin Mary. All of us did not exist prior to our conception. Uh, we came into being at a point in time. Jesus did not. He is the eternal Word who dwelt with the Father from eternity past. At the point of the virgin birth, he took on human flesh and came to this earth and dwelt among us. And uh, so he did that so he could die for our sins. Now, as we know, he was risen from the dead, he's exalted on high, and so he is above all, a point that John repeats twice in verse 31, um, so that we won't miss it. Uh, some manuscripts leave out the second one, but I think it should be in there. Now, John is not the only New Testament author or apostle to emphasize that Jesus is now exalted above all. Uh, the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 20 to 22, says, After God raised Jesus from the dead, 
he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule, and just so that you don't think that phrase is limited, he goes on, and authority and power and dominion. I think he covers all the bases there. And every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. The Apostle Peter makes the same point in 1 Peter 3.22 that Jesus is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. The author to the Hebrews spends the whole first chapter of Hebrews saying how Jesus is above the angels. And so Jesus is above all. Now, in our text, in verse 31, John contrasts Jesus with John the Baptist who is of the earth and is from the earth and speaks of the earth. Now, he's not nullifying the testimony of John. He's making a contrast. He is saying that John, while his testimony was true, is at best a human. He was born of the earth. He lived on the earth. He had partial revelation that God gave to him, like all faithful servants of the Lord, but it was limited. John was of the earth. By contrast, Jesus dwelt eternally with the Father. And because Jesus came to earth, he's back in heaven now, uh, exalted again to the right hand of the Father. John is saying we need to believe everything that Jesus revealed to us. And that's what he makes, that's the point he makes in the next verses, 32 through 34, that not only does Jesus have a heavenly origin, also Jesus has a heavenly message. Uh, verses 32 and following, what he has seen and heard, he, Jesus, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set a seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. John affirms three things in these verses. First of all, John shows us that Jesus' testimony regarding heavenly matters is true because it is eyewitness testimony. He's telling us what he has seen and heard in heaven. Verse 32, what he has seen and heard of that he testifies. Now, today we hear all kinds of stories about people who purportedly died and went to heaven and then they came back to life and came back and they wrote a book or went on TV or they're on the speaker circuit to tell us all about their experience. Uh, it's interesting that a lot of what they say contradicts what the Bible says about heaven and yet people flock to buy their books and they believe their books because Supposedly, it is eyewitness testimony. They saw it, and they're telling you what they saw. It's kind of interesting. Um, none of the people in the Bible who were raised from the dead wrote books or went on the speaking circuit to tell everybody what they saw while they were dead. None. Uh, you, you have the Apostle Paul, and he had a vision of heaven, and some think it might have been when he was stoned and left for dead. We don't know. But 
he said that he was not permitted because of the surpassing greatness of the revelation. He was not permitted to tell anyone about what he saw until 14 years later. And even then, he did not write a book about it. He just alludes to it in passing in 2 Corinthians 12 and says, because this vision was so great, I was given a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble. So God did not let him say very much about that experience. Uh, In modern terms, Paul missed a huge opportunity to cash in on a very marvelous experience by writing a book and making a lot of money. Um, John's point, though, in our text is this. Jesus can testify truthfully about heaven because uniquely he was there from the beginning, before the beginning of the earth. He was there from eternity. And he wasn't coming to earth to speculate. He wasn't coming to philosophize and say, well, I think heaven is like. He came to tell us who God is, what God is like, what heaven is like, and how we can get there by believing in him. And so John is saying his witness is reliable and true. Um, This isn't the only time, by the way, that Jesus in John's Gospel testifies to this. In John 7, 16, Jesus said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. In John 8, 28, Jesus said, When you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I speak these things as the Father taught me. In John 14.10, after telling Philip that he who has seen me, Jesus, has seen the Father, Jesus adds this, Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. But the Father abiding in me does his works. D.A. Carson sums it up this way. Jesus so completely says and does all that God says and does, and only what God says and does, that to believe Jesus is to believe God. Now the converse is also true. To disbelieve Jesus is to disbelieve God, and even worse, it is to call God a liar. John says that in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 10. He says there, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And so it's a very serious matter to hear what I'm telling you this morning regarding Jesus and go, Nah, maybe and walk away from it. It would be far more offensive to God, who is true, to call him a liar than it would if you walked up to me and said, I think you're a liar. I'm fallible and human, and I could well be mistaken on a number of things, but God is not. And you dare not call God a liar. The second point that John makes here is you can't judge the truthfulness of Jesus' testimony by taking a poll. Uh, Notice verse 32 in the middle there. And no one receives his testimony. Verse 33. He he who has received his testimony has set his seal to this that God is true. Now, obviously, in the context there, the first statement, first half of that statement is a generalization. 
because John right away says some have received his testimony. Um, It's like what we saw back in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where it says, He came unto his own, and his own did not receive him. Well, it sounds like none of them did, but then John goes on in the next verse and says, But to those as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. And so John is saying this, the general response to Jesus when he came was rejection. But some, including the apostle, believed in him and uh, gave testimony to it. The reason that men rejected his testimony we saw in chapter 3, verse 19. Men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. But some, by God's grace, and this has always been the case, some respond. God opens their eyes to see Jesus for who He is. God, as we sang, creates faith in Him, and we believe. And these affirm, John says, that God is true. They set their seal to it. Now, it's interesting to contrast uh, John's statement in verse 32 that no one receives his testimony With what we saw last week, John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, said, all are coming to him. How do you reconcile those? Well, again, I think you have to see that Jesus had a large popular following because people went to get healed. Uh, They went to get fed, as we'll see in chapter 6. People liked Jesus' stories. They found his teaching fascinating. They like the way that he taught with authority, not like the scribes and Pharisees and so on. But it was superficial belief. And as we saw in chapter 2, Jesus was not entrusting himself to them because he knew what was in their hearts. But there was always the remnant. And so you have this large crowd that are following Jesus. They're the ones that on Palm Sunday shouted, Hosanna! And then just, that Friday said, crucify him. Fickle belief based on popular opinion. Now, the point for us is this. The reason that we should put our trust in Jesus is because we have come to a firm conclusion based on examining the evidence, the apostolic witness that we have in the Bible, that God is true. And that the witness about Jesus is true. And that's the basis of our faith, is that knowledge that Jesus is the Christ. God sent him to this earth to bear the penalty for our sins. God raised him from the dead. He ascended on high. We trust the witness of the men who were there, who wrote it down for us, who gave their lives for that truth. It's true. And by setting your seal to this, that was a... New Testament way of saying you've signed your name on the dotted line. Uh, The seal was a ring that was unique to each person, and when you uh, signed a document, a legal document, there was warm wax, and you would put your seal in it, and it said you just just affirmed that document. And so to set your seal to it means you sign on the dotted line, I believe that Jesus is true. That's where I put my faith, and I will be faithful to him unto death, no matter what others do, uh, because I have set my seal to it. 
Now, the truth is this, especially for those of you growing up in a Christian home, as I did. It's easy to ride on the coattails of your parents' faith. It's easy to ride on the coattails of your friends' faith or popular opinion. You know, back when I was young, in the, in the 70s, relatively young, <laughs> um, there was the Jesus movement. And everybody in Southern California was going to concerts and getting baptized in the Pacific Ocean. And it was a popular wave. And, you know, maybe uh, you went to something like that or to a Billy Graham crusade. And as they sang, Just As I Am, everyone got up out of their seats and was streaming forward. And you just got this emotional wave that came over you. And you got up and you followed the crowd down and you prayed with the counselor and maybe shed tears of joy as he assured you that now you have eternal life and it can't be taken from you. And then the test comes. A few weeks go by and the glow begins to fade. And you're praying desperately for an answer to some problems that you've got in your life. And rather than going away, the problems get worse. What do you do? Do you, do you stay with Jesus because you say, I know that He is the truth. I, I am convinced of the apostolic witness to Jesus. And so, even though I may get my head lopped off, as John the Baptist did, I will follow Jesus. And I remember as a young man in college, coming to that conclusion where, you know, I, again, I grew up pretty sheltered in the church and all of that, and, and uh, was baptized, and then I went to college. And uh, I was only 17 when I started college, and man, you start hearing and seeing a lot of different roads you can go down, don't you? There are philosophies and there are uh, ways of life that are very different than you've been raised with, and you've got to evaluate it all and say, what am I going to do, you know? Is is the way I was taught the truth or not? And... uh, you know, you, you have to evaluate that. You'll hear lectures from atheistic professors debunking the faith, as I did. You know, you'll see people that make a profession of faith, as I said, and they rise up and then they fall away. Was it not true? And you have to decide for yourself. And I remember, again, uh, thinking it through and saying, you know, this has to be mine, and I can't ride on my parents' coattails. I'm glad for the upbringing they gave me, but this has to be mine so that even if my parents fell away, thank God they did not, but even if they did, I'm going to follow Christ. That's the kind of commitment to Him you have to make. And my point is, it's based on true testimony that we have, that Jesus gave us. As you read His words, as you read the New Testament accounts, you say, this is the truth. A third lesson here that John gives us about Jesus' testimony is that his testimony regarding heavenly matters is true because God sent Jesus and gave Jesus the full measure of the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. Now this truth that God sent Jesus is emphasized in John's Gospel uh, at least 39 times. 
that Jesus was sent from the Father. And it affirms Jesus' deity, it affirms his heavenly origin, and it also underscores his authority, as we've seen. And John will emphasize that in verse 35. When John says, for he gives his spirit without measure, in the context here, he is explaining why Jesus spoke uh, the words of God. The reason he did is because God gave his Holy Spirit to Jesus without any limitation. Uh, John the Baptist testified in John 1.32 and said, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained up on him. And so you say, well, wait a minute. If Jesus is fully God, then why did he need the Holy Spirit? And the answer is because he is fully man. And Jesus in his humanity always lived in dependence on the Spirit so that he could show us how you and I are to live in full dependence on God's Spirit. And it was the Spirit of God, John is saying, that enabled Jesus always to speak the very words of God. Now, two applications for us in this verse. One is for me, but secondly for you as well. And that is, while only Jesus could be the one who spoke infallibly the words of God, Every pastor and Bible teacher should strive to be faithful to the Word of God. The Word of God is our standard, and we can't vary from it. And I have two aims in every sermon I preach. My first aim is that after I am done, you would be able to go home, open your Bible, read the text that I have spoken on, and you will go, I understand that text now. I I see what it is saying in its context. And secondly, that you would see how it applies to your life, because these things are not just academic. God wrote them so that we would grow in godliness. And sometimes that means I need to speak on difficult subjects, because the Bible speaks very plainly about some hard things. I'm going to cover one in just a moment. The wrath of God. That is not a simple thing to talk about or fun or easy. It's in the text. And so we have to cover it. Now, let me be very honest. There are many pastors, perhaps even a majority of pastors in America today, who dodge the hard stuff. They give you little sermonettes that are happy, make you feel good, and you'll go home feeling good, and you'll be spiritually starving to death because they are not preaching the full counsel of God. And if you get around any of them, let me name one of them, Joel Osteen. The guy is a heretic. He is not preaching the wrath of God. He does not preach repentance from sin. He won't touch sin with a ten-foot pole because he wants to be positive. He's a false teacher. You see, you have to uh, be discerning because if you, and here's the application for you, if you sit under guys like that very long, you're going to spiritually atrophy. Because it's, it's like eating sugar all day long. It's not good for you. You know, it tastes great, but it doesn't help you be healthy. And so you need sound doctrine. And the word that Paul uses over and over for sound doctrine is healthy doctrine. It comes from, we get our word hygienic from it. So that's the first application. 
The second application is this, that while Jesus is certainly unique in having the complete fullness of God's Spirit, all of us repeatedly should be asking God for a fuller and fuller measure of His Spirit. Now you say, well, I thought we either are filled with the Spirit or we're not. I was taught that as a young believer that you claim the filling of the Holy Spirit by faith and you either have it or you don't. Well, over the years I've realized uh, it grows. Maybe it's our capacity that grows. Um, But uh, you need more and more and more of the Spirit. For example... The fruit of the Spirit can be evident in the life of a new believer. But even a mature believer recognizes, Oh God, I could have more love, and I sure need more joy, and more peace, and more patience, and more kindness, and more goodness, and more faithfulness, more gentleness, more self-control. There's room to grow in these. And so always I need to be saying, Oh God, would you fill me again, and again, and again, and increase my capacity so that I would be a man full of the Holy Spirit and a woman in the case of the women here. So John is telling us then, Jesus has a heavenly origin. Jesus has a heavenly message. But thirdly, he says, Jesus has heavenly authority. Verse 35, the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. The love between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is eternal and perfect. They are the example to us of what genuine love is. You remember at Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus and the voice of the Father came from heaven proclaiming, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And because the Father loves the Son, He has given all things into the hands of Jesus. And Jesus affirmed that on at least two occasions. In Matthew 11, 27, He said, All things have been handed over to Me by My Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then just before he ascended into heaven, you'll be familiar with this verse as Jesus gave the great commission. He said in Matthew 28:18, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth." That's just a, an astounding claim. Have you ever thought about that? If any mere man made that claim, we would know the guy's loony. He's lost it. He's crazy. All authority in heaven and on earth given to me, even the most powerful dictator on earth can't make that claim. Jesus could, and he made it with credibility because of who he is. And so it means that as we go and we proclaim the gospel, we can pray to Jesus and say, Lord, we know you have authority to open blind eyes. We know that you have the power to do that. We know that you reign on high. And so we ask you to work for your namesake and your purpose, and he can do it. And then finally, and this is the bottom line for all of us, John draws the conclusion in verse 36. He says, therefore, because of who Jesus is, because Jesus has this 
heavenly origin, because he has the heavenly uh, message, and because he has heavenly authority. Therefore, your eternal destiny hinges on believing in Jesus. Verse 36, he who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So there are two and only two options. There's no middle ground. Either you are currently, right now, as you sit here, believing in Jesus as your Savior and Lord, and you presently possess eternal life, or you are not obeying Jesus and you are presently under God's perpetual wrath. And these are present realities that get extended for eternity the instant you die. So either right now you have eternal life and you will go on having eternal life when you die, or right now you are under God's wrath. I don't care how well life is going for you. Uh, you are under His wrath now, and when you die, that will go on throughout eternity as well. Now, you might wonder, well, why does John say he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe the Son uh, does not have life? You would think he would use the same word in both cases, and some faulty translations translate it that way. Um, but the second word is obey. It's a very shift, distinct shift in the Greek word. He does it for two reasons. First of all, not to believe in Jesus is to disobey Him because God commands that everyone repent and believe in Jesus. And if God commands you to believe and you say, nope, I'm not going to, you're disobedient, right? Secondly, as we saw in Romans and as we've seen in many, many other places, saving faith is always obedient faith. That is to say, there are those who say, I believe in Jesus, and they go on living for themselves and disobeying Him, and their faith is proved to be false faith. Uh, now, none of us, of course, believe Jesus perfectly, but we're talking about the direction of your life, not perfection. If you truly believe in Jesus and are born again, that new life in you will show itself in a life of consistent and growing obedience to Christ. And that's what John means here. Now, this is the only mention of God's wrath in the Gospel of John. Whew, everybody says. Uh, it's all through John's revelation. I've never quite understood why unbelievers are fascinated with the book of Revelation because it's a book all about the wrath of God. The tribulation is God pouring out His wrath just prior to eternal wrath that will come. Um, but God's wrath doesn't mean that He throws a fit. God's wrath is His settled, steady, um, holy hatred and opposition to all that is evil, to all sin. And God has to be wrathful if He is God. Otherwise, He would not be holy. He would not be just. And, of course, the death of Jesus is all about the wrath of God. God poured out His wrath on Jesus so that you and I would not have to experience it if we trust in Jesus. That's the good news. One of the most scary sermons I've ever read is Jonathan Edwards' uh, The Justice of God in the Damnation of Sinners. I 
can't imagine sitting under him preaching it. For one thing, it would have taken him two hours. But um, it's just relentless. And, you know, you, you try and go out an escape hatch and he blocks you. And then you go the other way and he blocks you. He anticipates where you're going. And I remember that when I read that sermon, by the end of the sermon, I was saying, Oh, God, help. I want to believe in Jesus. I want to make sure I believe in Jesus. Because Edward shows that sin against an infinitely holy God is infinitely heinous and deserves infinite punishment. That's his main idea in the sermon. And it's a frightful sermon, but I think one that is true. And so, John is saying that those who refuse now to believe in Christ are presently under God's just wrath because they have refused to believe the revelation that God has given about His Son. They have called God a liar. And if they die in that state of unbelief, then they will experience the fullness of God's wrath throughout all eternity. And so John is saying, your eternal destiny hinges on this one thing. Will you believe in Jesus as your sin-bearer, the one who bore God's wrath for you, or will you not? I am greatly concerned, however, that all of you believe for the right reasons. I want you to believe for the right reason. And that reason is that Jesus is who God proclaims him, who God's word proclaims him to be. Jesus has a heavenly origin. He is the only one who came from heaven to earth to show us the way, as we sang. Jesus has a heavenly message. He's the only one other than the inspired authors of Scripture, who could infallibly speak the words of God to us. He is true. And Jesus has a heavenly authority. God has given all things into His hands, and all judgment even into His hands. And so, because of who Jesus is, believing in Him will bring eternal life. Disobeying the command to believe Him and going on your own way has you under God's wrath, and frightfully that will continue if you die in that condition. just want to close with this great quote from J.C. Ryle. Uh, sums up why we should believe in Jesus. Ryle says, We can never make too much of Christ. We can never have too high thoughts about Christ. Can never love Him too much, trust Him too implicitly, lay too much weight upon Him, Speak too highly of his, in His praise. He is worthy of all the honor that we can give Him. He will be all in heaven. Let us see to it that He is all in our hearts on earth. Let's pray. Dear Father, I pray You would open our eyes to see the beauty of Jesus, to see who He is, that He is the way, the truth, and the life that no, no one can come to You except through Him. I pray that our faith would not rest in emotion or in uh, others and what they're saying or doing, but that our faith would rest in who Jesus truly is as revealed in Your Word. And uh, I pray that if there are any here this morning, Lord, who have not believed in Jesus that you would open their eyes to see Him, that they would put their trust in Him this morning, 
and go away possessing eternal life as your free gift. So we give you thanks for your word that we stand on. It is true. Help us in times of uh, difficulty or doubt or trials to go back to that solid foundation of who Jesus is and rest there. We'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.